Welcome to the first episode of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and I am the project director for We Belong Here. This podcast is a product of Civic Commons, and Civic Commons is a new way of taking action together on our region's biggest economic and social challenges. By elevating community voices and uniting different sectors around mutually agreed goals, Civic Commons aims to build the infrastructure and collective muscle needed to address the root causes of inequity in Greater Seattle. So what is belonging? What helps belonging increase? What hinders belonging or, in other words, causes othering? I'm really excited about our first ever show. Let's now listen to the conversation my guests and I had over a video networking call on a Friday evening. Here we go. So this show is uh, our attempt to use belonging to create stronger relationships. And we're hoping that prioritizing the relationships before transactions uh, will create more powerful um, mutual aid, more social solidarity between uh, different uh, folks who are working on different different sectors and different institutions, et cetera. So every show will invite uh, wonderful people doing really impactful things. We'll strive to bring folks from different sectors, live experiences and backgrounds. And their commonality is a desire to create a region where everyone thrives. So our first guest is Ricky Hall. He is the Vice President for Minority Affairs and Diversity at the University of Washington. All right, thank you, Frank. Hello, I'm Ricky Hall. I use he and him pronouns. As Frank shared, I currently work at the University of Washington as the Vice President for Minority Affairs and Diversity and as the university's diversity officer. However, I'm not from the Pacific Northwest. I'm from the Midwest and specifically from the great state of Iowa. And when I give talks um, and I mention that I'm from Iowa, I um, often joke and say that, yes, there are black people in Iowa. Um, to which uh, there's usually great laughter and, and people acknowledge that uh, they were thinking were there black people in Iowa, and yes, there are. I, I was born and raised in Waterloo, Iowa, and for most of my childhood, my mother was a stay-home mom, and my father and stepfather were factory workers. They worked for, for John Deere. And I, I have four sisters and one brother, so there are six of us. I'm, I'm a middle child. I'm the fourth oldest and the third youngest. Um, and I was a first generation college student and um, I'm the only one of my students to live outside the state of Iowa. And while I no longer live in Iowa, I'm incredibly proud of my upbringing and I've, I've been shaped by those Midwestern values and I believe that they've uh, served me well. I'm passionate about college access and student success for underrepresented minorities, first generation, low income and other marginalized groups. Um, So that's a little bit about me both personally and professionally. Wonderful, thank you, Ricky. Uh, Our second guest, uh, we have Joaquin Wee, who's the external affairs manager and policy advisor for the City of Seattle's Office of Immigrant and Refugee uh, Affairs. Yes, hi, Uh, thanks for having me on the program. Um, uh, I'm Joaquin Wee, and I was born in Manila, Philippines, in the middle of martial law, which was a period in Filipino history where uh, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos really kept uh, a clampdown on uh, the Philippines and really set the Philippines back in a lot of ways. And my parents were part of 
I guess what some people call the brain drain in the Philippines, where a lot of workers, professionals left to pursue uh, more successful and lucrative economic opportunities elsewhere, like the United States. And so I landed in Cleveland, Ohio. So fellow Midwesterner, represent on this podcast. Um, and I grew up in Cleveland um, for about 18 years. I went to, um, uh, in the east side of Cleveland, I went to uh, high school and then a college not too far away, Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio, which is about 45 hour and a half, 45 to an hour away. And I moved to Seattle um, in 1998. So I've been here longer than any place else in the country. And what I, what, what I think, what I, the reason why I do what I do, and I work at the City of Seattle Office of Immigrant Refugee Affairs to help ensure that the City of Seattle Department's policies and outreach and engagement strategies all in some way, shape, or form focus intentionally on immigrant refugee issues because um, usually when, you're, when you have a successful strategy for reaching immigrants and refugees, it has to be done in a way that includes um, these individuals and these communities and that also recognizes the unique situation that people have when it comes to immigrant statuses because there's so many when it comes to living in this country and to immigrating to this country and also cultural issues regarding um, language access and uh, other other issues in in regards to to living in the u.s and so um we at the office prefer to talk about how we um, see immigrants and immigrant communities along an integration spectrum. So we do not use the term assimilation ever. Uh, we think assimilation is an outdated and antiquated term. Unfortunately, the federal government has reverted to an assimilationist type of um, um, philosophy in regards to immigrants, but we do not hold that same um, uh, that same doctrine, I guess. We prefer integration. Assimilation is where you move to a place and you completely um, deny or you um, leave behind the culture and language that you uh, came here with from your home country. We instead prefer integration, which is you, where you, you preserve and you keep those traditions. You pass them on to your um, to your kids and to even to your neighbors. And at the same time, you contribute those traditions and those customs and those cultures to what it means to be American. I mean, for a long time, spaghetti wasn't American. Hamburgers weren't American. But for some reason today, people think of those as very American things. Well, why can't the same hold true for um, things like chop suey, which or Maine. There's a lot of Chinese food that's actually indigenous to the United States. Um, and there's a lot of things that we think of as, as American or as part of another culture that are actually very uh, American. And so in immigrants coming here and integrating into the fabric of this great, and ex this great experiment that is America, we're changing what it means to be American. Because what it meant to be American now is very different from what it meant to be American back in the 1800s. And uh, I think that the more people are in institutions like local government or, or federal government who are these policies 
and these programs that are centering on immigrants, the more we can get closer to that idea of a, re, of, a, of a community and of a country that is welcoming to people and where people can actually come and um, really contribute to what it means to, to be American and, and the ever-changing um, identity of, that, of what that means. So that's a little bit about why I do the work that I do in the place that I do it. Thank you. Thank you, Joaquin. Uh, last, definitely, but not least, we have Jamie Lee. Uh, Jamie, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so I'm Jamie Lee. I work at the Seattle Chinatown International District Preservation Development Authority, also known as SCIPTA. Um, I am also a Midwesterner, so we got three Midwesterners on the call today. Um, two Ohioans, one from Iowa. People probably on the West Coast think it's the same place. Um, I... Uh, was born in California, but I am the children of immigrants. My mother is from Taiwan and my father is from Hong Kong. Um, they came over here for school in the 60s. Um, but I was born in California, grew up in Ohio, lived there for basically my whole life um, until I turned 18. And then I moved to Seattle to attend the University of Washington. So I've also been here. This is my 20th year of living here. Um, I I've been working, I was just doing the math, I've been working in the nonprofit sector for almost 15 years, which just makes me feel a little old. Um, I started out working in homeless youth and homeless services for quite a bit of time, then um, moved to work in the Chinatown International District about six years ago to do place-based work. It's interesting because growing up in the Midwest, I always felt a place. Um, I guess I could say I feel out of place all the time, but it's in a different way. Um, but I felt out of place all the time growing up in Ohio. And when I moved to Seattle, I definitely felt more at home. And I didn't even realize that I felt more, even more than at home. It's like I targeted to feel more at home um, when I'm in the Chinatown ID. The ID is definitely my heart. So our work is really to work um, with residents, businesses, and community members in the Chinatown ID, our organization, is really there to make sure it survives and it survives in a way that's authentic to itself. So a lot of what I do is really probably, some ways could be seen self-serving is to save the home that I love and the place that I love to be. Um, we work really closely with a lot of folks within the district and it's almost like with a small town within a large city and that's a pretty great place to be. And a lot of what I do is because I, I know the importance it was for me to be in a neighborhood and to have a place where I could be my most authentic self. And I want to have that opportunity to be available for others, you know, after we're all gone. And so that's really why I do the work that I do. Thank you, Jamie. And Jamie, if I remember correctly, you got a, your uh, time at the University of Washington, you did some volunteer work there that really kind of helped launch some of that nonprofit work. And so Maybe can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, my senior year at the UW, I was a super senior. I started working at the Carlson Leadership and Public Service Center, which I think doesn't have that name anymore, but it's in the same department that actually Ricky is in. And from there, I was working and networking with about 400 nonprofits across the city. And that's really where I got my taste of working in the nonprofit sector. I mean, I was hired as like a paper pusher student employee, and it really turned into um, a calling for me to get involved in nonprofits and I did a year of AmeriCorps and really got familiar with a lot of things in and out of the nonprofit sector. 
worked for a couple years in the U District with homeless youth and then ended up coming back to the UW to get my graduate degree at the Evans School in the School of Social Work. So really my time at UW was really pivotal in kind of where I am today, where I'm working in Seattle. So when I uh, chose or asked the three of you to come together, I didn't put the UW thing in my brain, Jamie, that you had gone there, that you gone there twice uh, with Ricky on the call. Uh, just a quick word about myself for the listeners. So uh, I, as I've introduced myself, Frank, now I'm with uh, Commons, and I've run that We Belong Here project for Civic Commons. But uh, I am the non-Midwesterner on this call. Uh, I'm actually from the great state of New Jersey. My parents immigrated there when I was three from uh, Seoul, South Korea. Uh, we actually immigrated to New York City. Uh, my friends back home get uh, upset with me when I say I'm from New York because they said you were only in New York for like less than a year. So what the heck? So I've uh, been proud to call New Jersey home. Not all the time, but you know, more proud nowadays. And uh, so thank you for uh, all of you introducing yourselves, talking about yourselves. Um, now that we've created a little bit of social cohesion, a little bit of bonding, we know each other's stories or we've heard from each other. In today's episode, we want to consider the impact that COVID-19 has had on our post-secondary educational institutions, our uh, immigrant communities in terms of uh, how they are served uh, by government and how, as uh, Joaquin uh, greatly put, uh, how the integration into this uh, country uh, can be really difficult for immigrants. Uh, there's immigrants on this call. And then especially uh, what's been happening in our international district community, who's been hit so hard with uh, loss of business and, uh, and uh, commerce and vitality. I will have each guest discuss something that they or their organization or team is working on. Uh, uh, and then we wanna see how we can collectively support each other with any type of resources, connections, networks, uh, IP that we have. Let's start with Joaquin. Joaquin, what is something that you are working on today uh, that the Office of Immigrant Refugee Affairs is doing? So uh, how, what, what are you, what's going on there? Well, I think one thing that probably a lot of your listeners already know, especially if you work in any kind of social service uh, agency or, or community-based organization, is that if the society or institution you're in had a particular dysfunction or inequity that was pre-existing to COVID-19, COVID-19 has made it much worse. It has laid bare all of the inequalities and inequities that our society promotes or perpetuates and, and chooses for whatever reason, for many reasons, not to really solve. So all the things that were systemic issues before are now monstrous issues now in the time of COVID. It's, it's ridiculous. Like one example that we contend with a lot, and Jamie and I have talked about this uh, frequently in the past few weeks as we've tried to respond to this crisis, is that when it comes to many services, financial, newly available or new financial aid programs to help people who've been economically impacted by, by COVID-19, um, a lot of these new programs come online very quickly, are all in English, and require a working internet access or broadband connectivity and some kind of computer or smartphone or other device to even access that web page to begin with. So 
people who didn't have the funds or access to begin with, especially around the digital divide, are really shut out of all these programs that are now increasingly online. Um, people who have are limited English proficient now have to contend with applications that are all in English. And so what it basically means is that consistently, no matter if it's a local program or a federal program, immigrants and refugees are at the back of the line. And it is ridiculous because these are the same communities that are experiencing the brunt of the economic crisis that's from the the COVID-19 public health crisis. And so, and it's not just people who are, you know, factory workers or people who work in the restaurant industry, but we're talking small business owners, um, people who work in nonprofits. Like there's so many people who just have not had that access and so many institutions that have not done the work of making sure programs are accessible in language or to communities that are now facing this issue of not being able to really serve these communities. And what it does is it basically increases uh, racial inequality and racial inequities. It, it, it makes the disproportionality so much worse. Now more than people who already live paycheck food next. Where am I going to get you know, rent once the moratorium on evictions is over? People may still find themselves two to three months in the hole owing their landlord money. And some of those landlords may be immigrants themselves who depend on their renters giving them uh, rent as a supplement to whatever fixed income they might have. So it's this chain reaction that happens when the economy shuts down and corporations and governments are feeling it in this big way, but then people at the very bottom with very limited access experience it in a much more larger, more significant way. And that's what we're all trying to, to figure out. I mean, that's what my role in the city is, going to department to department saying, okay, you're about to announce this new program. Have you considered how you're going to get the information out to limited English proficient communities or families? You know, just having it translated is maybe just the baseline. What about folks who don't have internet access? Or what about folks who still want to talk to somebody about this issue because they find it hard to read and access text on their tiny little smartphones? There's so many things that people just have never considered because they've never had to. And now they're very much having to consider it and then also having to fund it. All this happening while there's not really much money flowing from institution to institution. So it's, you know, from, from those of us who are working and thinking about these issues all the time, we had anticipated that this would be really hard for immigrants and refugees. And unfortunately, that is, in fact, what is happening. And so we're doing what we can, but it's always this perpetual learning process of figuring out what works and what doesn't work and then really making sure that the departments around the city and, and other cities, because I talk to my, my coworkers and my colleagues in other cities too, in figuring out and letting people know these are the strategies that work, do this. And once you learn about what works in your city, please let me know so we can uh, perpetuate those uh, equitable practices as well. Thank you, Joaquin, for bringing that up. As a, we, we used to work together in the same floor within actually shouting distance of each other. I was at the Department of Neighborhoods, and we were on the same floor. 
And I know, Joaquin, that a lot of what you do is uh, you have been working with lots of different uh, ethnic media to lots of those media channels who are losing advertising dollars, losing uh, uh, eyeballs and subscribers. And so what is uh, definitely funding is a necessary is, is necessary to help support language and translation. And it's been something that the city has tried to do, but has not done great in lots of ways because of before, but pre-COVID-19, just like you opened, was one thing. But now in the, the world of COVID-19, that's so much more, the, the harm is so much more perpetuated and so much more deep because of the inaccess, inability to access information can really help people. So is there a particular ask that you have in terms of um, what can what can organizations do? Is there, I know that the office has been thinking about uh, how to like help organizations do translation interpretation services in language. Uh, is there a playbook that you can offer? Is there anything that uh, maybe students at UW, uh, obviously uh, uh, Skipta is almost like a client because they uh, are a community of uh, uh, second uh, English language learners or immigrants people that have, don't have English as a primary uh, language. And so, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, one of the things that I've seen when it comes to ethnic media outlets is that they are trusted sources of information for folks who are limited English proficient. So people who are recent immigrants from Taiwan or recent immigrants from South Korea, they're not accessing the Seattle Times, they're not accessing definitely not the stranger. They're accessing, you know, the Korea Daily, et cetera, which is great, but not so great when a lot of these outlets are small nonprofits themselves or really small businesses that rely, as you mentioned, on advertising dollars. When I remember when I first saw that the Seattle Stranger was moving towards just online and ceasing print publication and then laying off other staff, I thought, oh man, that, you know what that means? That means that a lot of ethnic media outlets are next. And, and sure enough, it did happen. Uh, for instance, uh, La Raza de Noroeste, which is one of the top uh, Spanish language publications in Western Washington, it is no longer, um, I just got a, a message saying that they're no longer publishing right now. I don't know if it's permanent or temporary, but that is an important institution where uh, folks in Latino or Latinx communities get their information that's no longer around. Um, so I would recommend for folks who, who work in companies that want to reach immigrants and refugees, you know, you can buy ads and you don't have to be bilingual to buy these ads. Uh, those editors and those ad managers will work with you to come up with an ad campaign for your particular issue. And that's that's one thing that that has happened in the city. The mayor's office has sent an email to all public information officers in the city saying, hey, if you have COVID-19 related programs that you're starting up, consider put, making sure that you have funding for ad buys for these outlets that people are seeing and going to for trust as trusted sources of information, whether it's COVID-19 public health recommendations or just information about what's happening back at their home country or country of origin. Buying ads, I think, is a big one, especially for, for anyone listening who works for a government agency or a company that's still operating. Making sure that you have advertising dollars for ethnic media outlets is, is helpful. And any kind of 
crowdsourcing or GoFundMes or any any um, fundraising that some of our friends who are ethnic media outlets are doing, I think is helpful and important. And I do know that some outlets have received small business stabilization funding because some of them are small businesses. Some of them are tiny nonprofits. So they've received funding from uh, the Seattle Foundation and other institutions to support the work that they're doing. And so we thank our foundation partners in supporting that and recognizing the key role that ethnic media outlets play. If you can also donate to if there's ever an ask like the International Examiner or some of the other outlets that are nonprofit based, if there's a call out for funding, you know, please consider supporting them because it's, they provide an important service. And we don't always think of them, especially if we're no longer bilingual or, or, or monolingual. Um, I just wanted to echo kind of what Joaquin was saying about um, language access. I think that I used to be my practice pre, pre the time of COVID. COVID, when I got something that wasn't in language, I would immediately respond. And somebody was asking me to get it out to my community. I'd immediately respond with, where's the translation? And I feel like we're in a time where I can respond with that, but if I don't get a response quick enough, I'm going to translate it myself. I'm going to pay it and get it translated myself because I know that if we don't do that, then our community will essentially miss out on that opportunity. I think my thing, and I've been frustrated multiple, multiple times over the last three weeks of the amount of information that comes out in ling- not in language and online and the amount of information that we do not get as community-based organizations before this happens. When they say that they want to work with community-based organizations and we are told less than 24 hours that this fund is going to open and it's a rolling basis, that means for me that if it's coming out in English and it's coming out online, that they really only care about English-speaking, really white folks with technology having access to this money and that they're not really considering how any this is and how frustrating it is for us for our for us as CBOs and you know we're mobilizing staff that we have on that we have on hand that maybe speak the language that could potentially translate it as opposed to actually sending it out for translation um, so that part I think so I guess for me if there are funders listening and you are thinking about releasing any kind of assistance fund any um, whether it be for individuals businesses whatever is to really consider if you mean that you do want to serve you know, all folks, you know, folks of color, immigrants, refugees, people with not access to technology, to really think about how you do that rollout. And if you are meaningful in saying that you want to work with community-based organizations, have the community-based organization be developing how you roll out whatever you're doing. Because at the end of the day, I'm not sitting around waiting for funders to tell me that they got money. You know, we're doing other things. And so we have to actually pause. And I luckily had a call today with a different funder that's about to roll out of fund and she gave me a whole week's advance notice and that's awesome like it's way better than 24 hours and I was able to ask questions and you know we worked on it together and that was really nice to have. Joaquin um, and you made the point that this virus had really made apparent the inequities that are there and you're absolutely right but you're thinking and lots of needs across community but in terms of immigrant refugees is there I know there's a lot there, um, and, and you talked about the, the, the language issues. If you had to say this, you know, one in particular was the most pressing, is there one, um, is it this language issue or is it uh, uh, something else? I'm, I'm just curious, um, maybe our listeners are as well. I know, I know Jamie has, <laughs> has an answer of what she wished could happen. Jamie, did you, did you want to take that? I mean, <sighs> I, I mean, I think that there, 
there's what I work on and then there's all the I mean I don't know I guess the question is like what's the most important or what's the most pressing, most pressing I, I, I'm gonna say important but most pressing right now I know like I've, I've um, some organizations I've been contacted about they, they say food assistance you know that that is you know they have all these other needs they might work on housing and other things but they're like right now um, food assistance is the most pressing and so I was wondering is there's something that you all are seeing in the community? You know, I, I think it's, I'm thinking about, and maybe this can be, go into part of like, kind of like what I was going to talk about, about what we're working on. I mean, I talked a little, little bit about, you know, funding and stuff like that. And what's taking up most of my time these days is working on our small business work and really reaching out to small businesses. Um, we started a relief fund for small businesses in the Chinatown ID, SCIDPDA.org slash release, And that has been really great and just kind of, the response we've gotten from small businesses that they see that it's their community, it's us, we are in the community every day, it's their community really coming out for them and that's been really great. And um, getting information out to them has also been great. But the thing that I think that people don't realize about our organization is that you know we're, we're an affordable housing manager. So we manage 700 plus people in over 400 units of affordable housing in the Chinatown ID. And so our residents are there, our residents are in the district and it's really the work that we're doing with our residents that I think is kind of the unspoken um, or un non-visible thing that we're really focusing on within our organization. Our staff, our custodial staff, our maintenance staff, and our building managers have been there the whole time. They're essential staff. They have not gone home. They are coming to work every day. They're cleaning extra in the common areas of our building. We are doing food deliveries. Food security is a big issue in the CID. Uh, many of our residents rely on public assistance to get food, whether it be in schools or from the food bank or from the many senior meal programs that have now shut down in the neighborhood. And so one of the efforts that we're working is we, we do food deliveries every Friday from the ACRS food bank, um, but we're also looking at how to deliver meals and how to get meals to residents and how to use our restaurants in the neighborhood to do that. And then the other side of it is, you know, making sure that a lot of our residents understand what is happening, because as you know, as we said, you know, many of them don't speak English, um, they can hear things on Chinese radio, things like that, but we want to make sure, you know, so we've been doing wellness checks with our residents, we've called every single one of them to make sure that they're doing okay, if we can't get a hold of them, we go knock on the door, because the last thing we want is a sick resident to be stuck in their apartment. Um, and then we've also recognized that we have kids, and we have kids that are living in apartments in the CID and the community centers close and the libraries close. So <laughs> short of running up and down 8th Avenue, we want to make sure that they have everything that they need and making sure that a lot of our residents, they do not have access to um, Wi-Fi. They don't have access to internet and getting the devices that they need so they continue to do learning within, you know, within our building. And so that's like kind of the really non-visible part of the way that we're supporting our community. And so I think to answer your question, Ricky, about I think I think access to food and access to resources, and I know that's a really broad thing to say, but like just there are so many resources that people have come to rely on. It's like it's always going to be there, but the nature of this pandemic is so unique that I never thought there would be a day that, you know, you had to shut down the congregate meal program because you can't have 40 seniors gathering in a cafeteria, things like that that are seen so basic need that are just gone now. Part of the issue with the food bank, it's not that they don't have enough food, it's that they don't have enough people to distribute the food and like kind of take care of things. And so I think it's really around access that I think 
is um, a huge need. And like, I mean, it's the same thing with our community center, our library. I think we just always thought it'd be open. It'd be open for the kids, for them. But, you know, and so how... Something that I've been thinking about, especially while... Jamie is, has been talking, and, and also it's come up in the conversations that Jamie, have I, Jamie and I have had over the past few weeks, is that Washington State is a wealthy state. Like, residents and companies that are billionaires. Like, we have people who are billionaires, and we have companies that are billionaires. You know, I'm, I'm not this Bernie socialist, but I have to say, and I think most reasonable people will recognize that it just does not seem equitable for institutions, people, companies to have in excess of billions of dollars and then to have people right now struggling to make ends meet. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And so I really do think there needs to be this effort of some kind. I I don't know what that would look like. I don't know the specifics of how this would happen, but there's got to be a way to move money from these corporations that have billions of dollars. That's 1,000 million, billions of dollars to basically help people with their basic needs with food, medical, healthcare, and rent. Like, come on. It's just astounding to me to hear about some of the companies starting funds that it's like 0.001% of their wealth. Come on. I know that there's much more money out there to help support people. And I think that there really needs to be a conversation amongst corporations where they say, you know what, we're... uh, our, Our customers, our workers are struggling and we're in a extremely unique and and just bonkers time and it's going to have to call for well i don't really think of this as a really unique or bonkers solution but really companies funding the places that they call home whether it's seattle it doesn't have to be seattle or washington specific because this situation exists in a lot of successful and vibrant economies whether it's new york or california even in the south atlanta georgia etc so I think companies really need to take a more active role in supporting these places they call home and and moving money to people who need it. And that's not just people, but small businesses and nonprofits and all the things that make a society a society and also make a society welcoming. Because there's a reason why these corporations were founded in the U.S. or have called a certain city their home. It's because of the vibrant community. It's because of the amazingly talented and innovative immigrant workers or the people in that place or the, or the amazing hiking or whatever. I think it's time to really show that you are committed to these places by moving money to the institutions that make these places what they are today. So I think that one, that's a big one. That's, that's especially bothering me now because I hear the reports of, you know, the city of Seattle looking at a $200 million shortfall because all the taxes that we were collecting were no longer collecting. Same thing goes for King County and other municipal agencies and governments that no longer have the same budgets they had before. And this is going to be huge for 2021 because a lot of the taxes that we collect now are going towards 
infrastructure and programming for the next year. So I don't know what that solution is specifically, but I do know that there needs to be some kind of reckoning right now with the private sector and it's happening with, with everything in, in the U.S. I mean, part of your success were policies that helped make you the successful company you are today. And so it's time for you to give back. And, and that needs to happen now. It needs to have happened uh, a month ago. Yeah, I heard in the news that uh, during this uh, pandemic, uh, the number of people that are shopping on Amazon, because that's one of the few places that can, you can get some of the things that you need, that Jeff Bezos' uh, wealth has gone up $24 billion. Like that's, it's mind-boggling. There's a lot of people that are impacted by this pandemic. And definitely, uh, Joaquin, I would love to talk more about like donut economies and like, you know, regenerative economies and the ideas of how to be, uh, how, why is growth always the biggest thing? Why is that so important? Why, why, why have we made that the, why we, why we have, why we, why have we made growth like the altar that we all bow down to? Because that has obviously impacted environment, communities, safety nets, et cetera. I also know a lot of students at the University of Washington, and I know a lot of them are really upended with the change, uh, the closure of schools. Uh, obviously, they're doing uh, online schooling, but there's a lot of students who I also know are impacted, who are from the communities that we're talking about, who are from families that are immigrant families, that are uh, first-generation college students that are uh, primary, not English as a primary language uh, speakers. So. Ricky, feel free to jump in and talk about, you know, respond to some of the things that Jamie and Joaquin said, but also like, please tell us a little bit about uh, some things that you may be working on. So I'm working with my team to ensure that equity issues continue to be top of mind, even as we interact um, virtually. Um, we've talked a lot about that at the university and I'm really pleased that it's not always just coming from me, that actually the president and other leaders bring this this up, um, this issue up, and they're checking in. Even our board of regents um, last week, you know, asked how, how are the students doing, and um, and they often ask about specific uh, populations of students too. So I'm glad that you know even folks at that level are, are paying and get the importance of making sure that we're equitable as we we even move into this this online kind of environment. So we we're making sure that folks' educations aren't disrupted because of a lack of access to technology. I know Joaquin talked um, a bit about that. And we, you know, as you know, we have students who are from all over and many you know, went back home um, to different states. But I'm thinking even in particular here in, in Washington, many of our students who went back to places in Eastern Washington, you know, I've been to some of those places, some of the smaller, um, communities and some of our reservations and, and just even when I'm there, no access, you know, on my, my cell phone. And so I know that technology has been an issue. So I've been working really with leadership and our, our students and so forth to make sure those who, who um, didn't have access are, are having access so that um, their educations aren't disrupted. We've been uh, mindful, um, not all students, um, that not all students had some place to go if they if we would have closed all the residence halls, you may have read that some institutions, that's exactly what they did. They closed, they gave students notice, you know, a few days notice or a week notice that they were shutting it down and that they had to go. And, and again, I, I don't think people think about the impact of that. Not all students have some place to go, certainly our international students, but 
students who were previously in foster care. You know, that's, we have a program in my office that works with that population. Um, and so, you know, they wouldn't have had places to go. So I'm glad uh, that our leadership, you know, they were aware of that and they made sure that they kept the residence halls open. We have been working to make sure that our underrepresented and our often marginalized students are being su supported remotely in all ways. So our instructional center is working to make sure that students who need tutorial support and assistance with graduate school preparation and those kinds of things, that they're being served well virtually. I've been really impressed with my team and others around the university that's really worked collaboratively to make sure that we can still provide these resources to students, even though uh, it's virtually. Our um, Kelly Ethel Center um, that works with a lot of our social justice related student organizations and, and, and some of our other staff members, um, that they're making sure that our students have, have um, what we like to talk about, a home away from, from home, um, even in this virtual setting. They've been creative and innovative and finding opportunities to try to create to create community amongst students and, and to have regular connections and, and drop-ins. Because um, students are feeling isolated. That's one of the things that we're we're hearing and, and there are issues that are coming up that we hadn't even anticipated. Like for example, students have been moved home and you know we're using this, you know, all this Zoom technology and video conferencing. Students are saying, well, you know, can I, can I email you or can I get back to you? Which, you know, if you know just today's students, they typically don't want to, they don't respond in email. They don't want to really engage that way. They want to engage in other matters. But what we are finding out from students is like, it's a lack of privacy. You know, that they're at home and, and their parents are around and that they may be listening. The parents may, have no, may, may or may not know, know certain things. If there's a mental health issue or challenge, they might not want to talk about that because there's a sibling or a parent or another family member around. And so um, being aware to, you know, is this a good time? Um, would you like to connect another way? Or um, do you want to get back to us when you can take a walk? And, and so just being mindful of those things. And, and uh, so we're learning a lot about this time and this moment, how to, to serve, some, serve our students well. Uh, it's unfortunate that we're here and the reality is we don't know how long we're going to be here or even if we're able to to come back and then you know later in the year that there's another spike and we're you know we have to work uh, remotely um, again so you know paying attention to these things and figuring these things out now I think is so important so those are some of the, the things that I'm working on professionally with my team on a personal note um, it goes along with some of the things uh, you all been been discussing, Joaquin and Jamie, a little bit. But I'm, I'm thinking about it specifically about the African American community. You've all probably seen on television or read that African Americans make up a disproportionate number of the coronavirus deaths and hospitalizations. And and I have been working to raise the alarm um, and awareness, certainly with my family, but also others in the African American community about the virus. You know, early on there was this myth that blacks couldn't get the, the virus we, we certainly had to dis, dis, dispel that that myth and, and we have to make sure that people are taking the, the necessary precautions to not get the virus and if they are unfortunate to have contracted it that, the, that they not spread it to others and so it's been been great um, 
for me to see black celebrities and athletes using their platforms to raise awareness. Um, and even though um, some people do, um, we know that this virus doesn't discriminate. And, and as Joaquin eloquently said, this pandemic has laid bare um, our inequities. And so this is something we need to be paying attention to across our communities. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's one of the things where, as I was talking, like on the list of things that we need, really more culturally accountable and more messaging from communities that have not had the ability or had the the funding or the investments of of messaging the importance and the danger of of this virus um, and this uh, pandemic. That I was in a webinar earlier today with Matthias from Public Health, and he's saying that it seems that in looking at some of the data around ethnicities and around race, there appears to be some preliminary data showing a disparity amongst Latino and Latinx communities and a higher than average uh, infection rate amongst that community in Washington state. And so if that's the case for this particular immigrant community, I can't even imagine what holds for other people of color communities uh, who are immigrants, but also just people of color in general. I think that because of a lot of things, historical and institutional racism, and because of the disinvestment of institutions that do the work of communicating to people of color and marginalized communities, that there is, there's been a lack of really seeing the true scope and the reality and the facts behind this particular pandemic. And I think it plays out in just everyday institutions, like uh, some reports that ethnic groceries are not instituting the same types of social distancing measures that, say, the safe ways and the QFCs are doing, or um, people of color, immigrant communities um, going out to parks or other places and congregating despite the stay-home orders, etc. Not because they are willfully trying to tempt death, but I just think because the lack of institutions or functional messaging has been out there to those communities in the same way that it has to white communities or to American communities. So having, having a more robust uh, system out there, and it's not just all on public health, it's really all of us. It's media, it's newspapers, it's um, educational institutions, it's, it's government institutions like ourselves. We all play a role in normalizing this type of messaging and making it be accountable to all communities. And I think that we just, America has just not been able to do that. And we're seeing it play out in the disparities that are happening, yes, in, in Washington state, but also definitely across the country. If you look at the rates in places like uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and, and, and New York, for instance. Yeah, and, and I definitely um, would say you're right that it, it's on all of us, and that's why I've been trying to get that message out of my community, but also trusted leaders. I think that's so important, and that's why, you know, I mentioned the, the entertainers and, and athletes. Like it or not, it's certainly in my community, people look up to those folks, and, for the, and they listen to them certainly more than they will listen to me. I all hear my nephews and others quoting things back that some of these basketball players, and like I told you that last week, you know, but they hear it in a different way. And I think it's really important, especially at this time, because even though we know how serious this is, 
there are folks out there that are actively working against and saying that this is all you know made up and that um the the um statistics and, and things that folks are putting out there and showing that those aren't accurate and you know and so um at the same time that we're trying to get out information there are others who are also trying to use that that message to be divisive yes i i think that uh the lack of messaging the lack of uh people and organizations that have prioritized translation and actually accessible information to communities um, one thing that Jamie said is the need for volunteers to help get food to residents, uh, the need for access to their tablets or Wi-Fi. One thing I remember as an immigrant kid uh, growing up in New Jersey was I was the translator. Me and my brother translated for our families, right? Like we went to the doctor, we went to government offices, we went to the PTA, the, uh, the principals, and we did all like the translation from Korean into English and vice versa. And it's a really weird place for a young person to be in such an important role in their family for their family to be able to exist and function in society. And, you know, I'm not trying to Frankenstein uh, a solution here, but I know that University of Washington has a lot of undergrads and grad students who are immigrants who speak languages, uh, all the different languages that we need. Is there any way for them to potentially support some of the work that Jamie, that Joaquin, the city is doing to help some of these uh, uh, organizations get things out and translate it. I know, Jamie, you said that, you know, sometimes things get hit across your desk and you need to get translated and you have to have a, someone that in the office hopefully can speak that language and do, uh, and translation is an art. You know, that's something I learned at the city. Like translation is not just like take these words and translate them literally into another language. Because a lot of times the words in English make no sense to people in different uh, uh, languages, right? Um, I learned that lesson uh, many times over when I was at the city. But having, uh, you know, young folks potentially could be translators, could help with like maybe like, uh, I obviously you can't do activities with like young people uh, in the housing. Yeah. Is there any like way that like UW students could potentially support some of these? Yeah. Um, actually, the person that's been helping the most to translate things is an outgoing senior from the University of Washington. He interned with us earlier this year and doing outreach to small businesses and is a great, he's fluent in Cantonese and Mandarin, so really using one. I think, yeah, delivering food, I think, is something that we have been saying is if you feel comfortable, feel healthy, and feel, you know, able to do that, we definitely welcome, especially young folks that can carry groceries up some of our, sometimes the elevator breaks in our buildings. And so, you know, um, and what what's happening is, you know, we're providing um, proper equipment, um, gloves and masks and everything for them to deliver the food and then they're able to knock and then step back and the, the resident um, can pick up the food. And so I think stuff like that um, is definitely um, welcomed. And I have a feeling that we're going to have a need a little more for more volunteers as we get more access to hot food to be able to deliver. Um, our hope is that most of the folks that can walk themselves to a restaurant can pick up the food, but there will be some residents that don't feel comfortable coming outside or cannot. And so having support in that way, I think is really great. Um, the other thing that we're working on, which right now we're still trying to figure out how this is going to go, is some of the work that I've been doing this past year has been around the census. <laughs> I started planning about a year ago, and everything that we were going to do was pretty much chucked out the window. And so, you know, all of our in-person questionnaire assistance is done. And if anybody knows, you know, what the census is for, our organization relies heavily on the information that we get from the census for a lot of our funding. Our neighborhood as a whole does. We are, you know, the census really determines a lot of the access to resources that we get. And so 
one of our things our interns are doing is like we their phone numbers are out there and if seniors need help talk, taking the census they'll do it over the phone with them and so things like that that if for people that need to feel more comfortable that have language capability and the census is actually quite simple to take it's actually pretty easy to do over the phone and they've been getting it done within 10-15 minutes with residents and so just kind of that is another piece of just like the, this other thing that we're trying to do to get to make sure that, that continues to happen as well and so those are definitely ways that students get involved especially ones that are um, have language capacity would be really great yeah and, and, and i was going to say our students what i find with our students is they're pretty engaged they're more engaged than community that um that i think some people would imagine but i i'm getting um what the, what the needs are if those can be sent to me and then i can get them to our folks that work most closely with students they're good at disseminating and getting information out i think uh this time right now um where things that students can do remotely in particular and you know because i know some of our students are feeling really isolated and they're looking for different things to do um that I think there might be some 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 students who will step forward. Knowing the information is also helpful. What the needs are, um, because then that helps. You know, things come across. You know, all of our desks. If you know what they are, you say, "Oh, I know. Um, this organization actually has a need for this." Or let me make this connection. But also, you know, I was thinking while I was listening um, to Jamie. I, I have a colleague who has been doing some work in in the. ID and, um, and and doing some organizing or getting people to come in who feel comfortable to do something. So certainly we can connect and make that link. And, um, and, and I'm sure he might be able to repurpose some of the things that they've been doing or some of the folks that have been helping him to also help with the food delivery. Um, that's great. And then this is a really random one, but I know another thing that we've been thinking about this week is um, wanting to have um, masks available to our residents, especially the ones that live in single room occupancy um, hotels. SROs, for those of you who don't know, are in old style of building apartments where you basically have a room with a sink, but your bathroom and your kitchen are shared um, on the floor. And so one of the things that we're prioritizing is, um, you know, people are making those cloth masks out there right now. That if, you know, there are people with um, sewing capabilities, which I am not one of them, um, well, I can sew, I can't use a sewing machine, you know, to have those available because, because, you know, our units down in the ID are really small. And so people are kind of living really close together. And so to have more protective equipment, especially, you know, if, if they're sharing a kitchen, sharing a bathroom with other folks that maybe aren't within their, you know, their unit, that's, that's also something that we're working on as well. Yeah. That's something that I didn't even think about the way the, the units are set up that you can't physically distance from each other because you are sharing uh, necessary facilities so that you can take care of yourself. Jamie, if someone wanted to, you know, reach out to you to ask for uh, or wanted to help out in some way, how can they reach you? Um, they can email me, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E-L at S-C-I-D-P-D-A dot O-R-G. Um, it's six, uh, a little bit uh, past the hour. Um, I know we started a little late, but I wanted to, you know, also respect your time. It's a Friday night. And I'm sure you're all going to go stay inside your homes and go, go crazy. So <laughs> uh, if you, the listeners can actually see the videos, you would actually see uh, people like just living it up right now. Uh, so I apologize. Maybe one day we'll turn this into a blog. We'll see. And so I want to thank my guests for spending time uh, with us because time is one of our most elusive resources, uh, especially nowadays. 
And I'm honored and grateful for all of your friendships and the work you uh, have done and will continue to do. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in for our very first podcast. And uh, if you like what you heard, please subscribe if one day we have a subscribe button on our website. And stay safe, build bridges, and remember that we all belong here. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.